The following podcast contains explicit language. What's really good, everyone? This is GD, Gene Demby. I am the founder and editor of Post Bougie. I'm also a correspondent for NPR News. I'm here with my play cousin, Taryn Hall. Hey, Gene. What's up? T came up from Richmond to do this. Uh, we have a very special guest today. Yep, we have novelist. Wait, do we want to say something else before we do that? Do that okay, what else do you want to say? How's Richmond treating you? How's Richmond treating you? Yo, Richmond is so good. Okay, so yesterday I hosted a uh, fashion show for my grandmother. At your crib? No, from... At the Belmont Golf Course for All my right. grandma. She's in the Golden Angels. Shout out to Granny. What is the Golden Angels? It is a uh, recreational. It's like a biker gang with full yeah, it is a recreational group for mature adults, mm. um, and my grandmother put together a fashion show, and I did the floral arrangements, the music, and I was the MC. Oh, I also okay, did the Granny Hall. Wait, wait, wait. So wait, you said Granny Hall. Granny Hall. She, no, her last name is Walker. I'm no. sorry. Okay, Granny Walker. Yeah. So we. Um, you were the MC. I was the MC. I designed the flyer. I designed the floral bouquet, um, and I also put together the musical selection. Wait, so what kind of music you put together for the old folks? Um, I put a little Frank Sinatra on here. Uh, I put a little bit of uh, Summer Breeze, like the jazz remix, not the Isley Brothers. That was the Isley Brothers. A little Who's That Lady. Some because yeah, um, they like a little before Isley Brothers. Right? Yeah, but like you know, if you get like the smooth jazz version, they're usually like, "Ooh, yeah, this sounds so good." So uh, it was awesome. She was so excited. Uh, my mom was in town, so I just I've really been enjoying uh, doing some. Martha Stewart-esque type of thing. So my takeaway from this is that you kick it with old people. That's what. That's oh what man, they're the best. Oh, and uh, older women, the Golden Angels, they go in when they when mm, yeah, yeah they go in. They they <laughs> my grandmother and her best friend are off the hook, like because you have no filter, so they just say stuff that's just ooh, it'll burn your eyebrows off. <laughs> so you do that now. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you do that shit now. <laughs> Anyway, we have a very, 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 very special guest with us today. Attica Locke, a novelist who just released Pleasantville. It's her most recent offering, so you guys should check it out. Um, she also is a writer on this little show. I don't know if uh, some of you guys may have heard of it. Empire? Uh, never heard of what is What is Empire? I don't know. They have some chick named Cookie that's like uh, a main mm, character. Who knows? Okay, it must be like on IFC or something. Don't forget. Eh, who knows? <laughs> anyway, uh, thanks for joining us today. We're really excited to get into this and delve into the juiciness that is Pleasantville, that is Empire and Attica's uh, expertise about writing. So here we go. You wanted to get back into writing about the character that you got into with Blackwater Rising um, and environmental lawyer Jay Porter. And I wanted to kind of know what drew you back to um, his story after getting away from him in the cutting season. Well, I, I would have to say the subject matter of Pleasantville came first, okay, and then and then the realization that that story had to be told by Jay came. Hmm. I actually resisted writing anything that I can't even stand to use the word sequel. It just it makes me so nervous. Um, Why is that? Because the, I think there's a fear that when you say sequel, that the reader is going to want to pick up the second book and have the exact same experience they had with the first book. Mm -hmm. And that was never my intent. 
not only did I not want to do that, I didn't think I could do that. So the fear in calling something a sequel is that you're, you're selling something that you're not going to deliver. Mm. You know, in a lot of ways, Pleasantville kind of stands on its own. Um, so what happened is when I finished Blackwater Rising, I was kind of, kind of done with Jay. I wasn't even, there was no part of me that was thinking about writing about him again. Mm -hmm. But what happened is that my dad in real life, my dad, who is kind of a, Jay Porter is a sketch of my father. Really? Yeah. Former political activist went on to become an attorney. Um, When my dad ran for mayor of Houston in 2009, Hmm. I had this surreal experience of having written about Houston in the, in my first book in, in the eighties. And, and then suddenly walking through Houston 30 years later, and it was all the same characters from my first book. Right. You know, it was like there were the union guys and the dirty right. oil men and the black preachers and the, the Metro reporters. It was surreal to be inside political, um, political stuff again in the same city 30 years later. And I remember looking at my sister during the campaign and saying, this is a book. I, I This is a book. And so even then I tried to not make the book be with Jay. I tried to say that I could do the book with this reporter character. And finally, I just accepted that if I was going to be telling a story, if I was going to be furthering an American story about race post-civil rights, that Jay was just the guy to do it with. And once I accepted that, I felt free. So, Attica, let's back up a little bit. Tell us a little, give us a little um, summary about the plot and like what read, because I don't want to give away too much, but what can the readers look forward to in the new uh, Pleasantville Uh, book? Pleasantville, um, let me start by saying this. I discovered Pleasantville by accident during my father's campaign. I'm born and raised in Houston, but I never ever heard of Pleasantville. What happened is during my dad's campaign, I had to go to a candidate forum for him in Pleasantville because he was running late. He was in traffic. And so my (laughs) job was to get out there and get up and tell some cute father daughter stories so I could stall. Right. Keep the seat warm. Yeah, just till he could get there. But the point is what happened to me, I kept thinking, wait, what is this place? Because to drive through Pleasantville in 2009, it's a mostly black middle class neighborhood. Mm -hmm. But let's be real. Some parts of it are a little worse for the wear. There are some abandoned homes there. There are some boarded up homes. And I'm trying to think to myself, wait, why is there a, a candidate form happening here? Why is everybody running for mayor and city council and congressperson in the community center of this tiny neighborhood full of black folks? And that question led to me discovering the history of Pleasantville. Pleasantville was founded in 1949 by two Jewish developers. Um, They uh, got this idea to start what was the first of its kind, one of the first in the nation, a planned community for black folks with money wait so it was it was a it wasn't to be an integrated community it was a a planned community no just for it was well-off black folks or at that time black folks couldn't buy nowhere else that's right that's right so they set up this place where doctors teachers engineers lawyers 
all moved into it was like a Levitt town, but for black folks with money. So wait, just out of the kindness of their own hearts? So what was their motivation? You know what? I can't find that is the one part of the story that is very difficult to find. I don't know what motivated them to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't find anything online in the depth of my research in talking to even the, the elders out in Pleasantville that bought the first homes. Even they couldn't tell me why these men chose to do it. Wow. But they they accidentally shifted state politics because what happened is they um, when you dropped in a bunch of moneyed, engaged and educated black folks into a single voting precinct, mm-hmm. they shifted state politics. Yeah. So I just got really fascinated by Pleasantville. And and during my dad's campaign, I would say within 48 hours of being back in Houston and on the ground, I knew that I had a story. And I knew that there was going to be a block walker, a young girl who was going to go missing. You know, the people that go and pass out the flyers and leave them on your doorstep. (laughs) I knew there was going to be a girl like that, 18 years old, who walks through Pleasantville one night and does not come home. And so the story of the book is that Jay Porter, 15 years after Blackwater Rising, has become an environmental attorney who is representing Pleasantville on a whole nother matter, dealing with some chemical factories out there. But he gets sucked into the story of what happened to this girl. And it becomes it leads up into a big trial, a big case that ends up dissecting a crooked election. So is the hmm. is the environmental story here is that based on real life too? Or well, yeah, it, it is. I I I I you know I mix fantasy and and reality. Sure. It, the book takes place in 1996. In reality, Pleasantville is a victim of Houston's obsession with industry. That when it was formed, it was on acres and acres of prairie. Okay. But over the years, it has been boxed in by industry okay. and chemical and chemical factories some some the, the residents fought a lot of this but they ultimately didn't fight hard enough or just didn't win and in 95 there was a huge fire from a chemical factory that decimated some of the homes out there wow. and there was a humongous lawsuit a big class action suit so in my book i have put jay porter as the guy leading this class action suit that really happened in real life oh i see okay no, it's a turn. You're about, to, you're about to say something. No, I was going to ask um, about your screenwriting work, like how. And I've asked this. I've asked you this. Oh, hold before. on, man. We're not done with Pleasantville. Yeah, and no, I'm asking about how her screenwriting experience has shaped her ability to like write tight uh, narratives in books. Because if you like reading her books is a gripping experience and I always find myself like I remember the last time I I was uh reading when I read uh the cutting season I was at my job I worked at a consulting firm and I had a a desk and I had to close my door so that I could finish the rest of it because I was like I can't have can't people have people like see me like reading on the job but I had to finish it and I felt like that and you don't always get that experience when you're reading books. And so like whenever I have that experience, it just like makes me so excited. So that's why I, I was super excited to talk to you today. And I'm, I wanted to know like how you maintain that pacing um, with this book and how you w- were able to apply your screenwriting experience. I think you're right on the money. I think it has deeply influenced how I write books. And I think for the most part, it's there's something about s- storytelling that's been become very, very ingrained in me. And, and so I have, um, you have a great voice for it. I have a confidence around, 
um, structure. I'm actually sitting here on my bed right now trying to uh, break an Empire episode, but I got got note cards all around me. But I've gotten really <laughs> comfortable being able to have a felt sense about um, how to tell a story and in what order to keep your audience there. And that's just from doing story after story after story with scripts for years. And also scripts taught me to have a love affair with plot. So I never came to books with this sense of, you know, I'm just going to write this highbrow literary fiction that just, you know, nothing ever happens. It's all character driven. It's in this people's head. I'm very clear that you can have character and you can have some banging poetic sentences Mm -hmm. and have a story that moves. So I I think that scripts taught me to not be afraid uh, to love plot. Gina's bursting forth with questions. No, because I mean, <laughs> the joke among post Bougie folks is always that I make everything about housing. So now, like, we went down this rabbit hole, and so I want to talk <laughs> oh to you about God. this. So, like, um, so you have this this community that today is uh, that is sort of that it has a bunch of uh, economic challenges. Um, it does, and it, that, that it started with integration. It, Pleasantville is <clears throat> literally the embodiment of the paradox of progress yep. on the mm. other side of integration. That's where I was going. That, that's exactly what it is. Because what happened is once black folks could live anywhere, you have anywhere. the younger generation saying, why do I need to live all the way out there? Man. I can be somewhere closer. And you also have the older folks dying off and their grandkids not necessarily choosing to keep up those homes. Absolutely. That's that's where the empty ones are coming from. And then you have Latino families who are moving in. And this is like their chance to grab the American dream. Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to be honest. Some of our people out there. I'm going to be real, don't really like that that much. Hmm. They want it to be the old way when it was all black, but it isn't anymore. And Mm -hmm. it's almost like unsustainable, right? I mean, you can't, there's no way you can make it that again. It is unsustainable. I, I was just there when I when I when I did a part of my book tour in Houston and I went and spoke at a high school out there. And 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 some of the elders, I would say like twenty or twenty-five of the elders in the community came and sat in the front row of this auditorium. And I also heard some other people, their children standing up. So you're talking about people who are like my parents' age, like in their sixties, saying, We're moving back home. Hmm. You know, I, I heard that from several people that the only way to save Pleasantville is that people of either my parents' generation or my generation have to choose to move there, get out a bucket of paint, and make it something again. That's the only way. Right. It, it's it's one of those things that we always talk about when you talk about the paradox of progress. Right? Is that um, there are all these institutions and lo- um, and communities that are sort of held together in this weird way by the strictures on Black life, and once those strictures. Mm-hmm. They don't fall away completely, but once they become looser, um, people have more room to move. They can do – they have more agency in a lot of ways. Um, and so they make different decisions. And, they, and they, like, that has had – like, has been to the net benefit of black people as individuals, but it's hurt black institutions. And that's the thing that's really hard for people to sort of wrap their minds around at the same time, right? Like, you look at black colleges. Um, yeah. suddenly don't – can't pull from the same pool of, like – uh, black brain power that they could have pulled from, say, 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. – you know, it is – a net good that a black kid she can go to Stanford or MIT, mm-hmm. um, and yet, and, and yet, yet you, right, you feel a loss, right? You know, when I think about Pleasantville, I feel a sense of loss. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't want to go back to an America that that, that made requires possible, yep. makes Pleasantville mm-hmm. necessary right. in a way, yeah, by the exactly. way, right? Exactly. Whew. Okay, sorry. <laughs> 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 yeah, I mean, yeah, no, I think this is a really, it's a thing. We, yeah, whatever, whatever. Sorry. 
Is there anything else you want the listening public or your people to know about this book versus the other two that you've written? Um, I love it. I mean, <laughs> I think it may, you know, I saying favorite is stupid because I always think the last thing I wrote is the best thing I wrote, but I, I will say this book is, is very ambitious and I'm, I'm, I'm proud of it in a, in a different way than I'm proud of the other ones. Obviously I was proud of the first book because I wrote a book. Oh my God. I didn't even, <laughs> I didn't even know I could do that. How old were you when the first book came out? Um, when it came out, how old am I now? I was like 35 when it came out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm 41 awesome. now. And, um, how long did it take cut- you? I'm, cause I'm, I'm, th- I'm curious about this. <laughs> mm-hmm. How long did it take you to do this? Here's what I did. I got really sick of Hollywood. I was a Hollywood screenwriter, uh, I wrote movie scripts for uh, over a decade mm-hmm. and um, none of them ever got made. And I got really, really, really burnt out and um, bored, frankly, with the whole thing. And I decided to walk away and write a book. And I took out a second mortgage on my house Damn. to do it. Oh, my God. Um, well, y'all, now, wait a minute now. This was a different economy. Y'all remember 2005? Right, exactly. Oh, yeah. damn. Yeah. Do you remember that people were taking... Yeah, they were yeah. banks. Yeah, yeah they yeah. were going to Hawaii on okay. their equity. They were buying boats and stuff. So I was like, well, then I can write a book. Mm-hmm. So I gave myself a calendar year. I wrote, um, I wrote a first draft in probably 10 months. Okay. And then I didn't have any money. <laughs> so <laughs> then I had to go back to writing scripts. And so then I would say that there was another year of fixing that first draft and trying to get an agent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then after that, once I sold the book, and I sold it pretty quickly after getting an agent, then there was another year that you work with the publisher. Mm-hmm. Al- almost every book that from selling it to the publisher to seeing it in a bookstore is a year. Okay. Ugh. So how did you pivot back to Hollywood? What made you want to pivot back to Hollywood? You said you were sick of it. Okay, she so back some, a little bit. She had to make some guap. But I know. She yeah. had to get some... Like, lying. Yeah. So, I mean, here's, here's the thing. When I got that book deal, I got my book deal in 2008. Mm-hmm. Here's another story in the, the economy shifts and everything shifts. I got a two-book deal that was huge that I got it two months before Lehman Brothers collapsed. Oh, my Damn. God. Jesus. So you're talking about an entirely different economy. Right. Mm-hmm. And so what and- I've watched in my publishing career, I came in at the at a time not only when publishing was shifting into e-readers and all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff, mm-hmm. but also the whole American economy. So I just watched them little numbers get smaller and smaller. <laughs> oh, no. And so I remember telling myself early on that it was going to take me about five years to understand publishing as a business model, to figure out what this is. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, you you they're doing a lot, but you do a lot too. Like I pay my, a publicist, publicist out of my pocket, I pay, pay for my website. You know what I mean? Like I pay for some of my marketing. So I was like, you're going to, it's going to take a minute to figure out if you can eat off of this. Mm. And five years later, I looked up and went, Oh yeah. Right. No, you actually can't quite eat off this. (laughs) This does not live in Southern California with a husband who's a public defender and a kid in private school. (laughs) That shit don't work. It don't add up. Right. Right. And so so I was like, I got to figure something else out. And I, I thought about being a professor, but I knew I didn't mean it. Right. I, I just, (laughs) 
I so don't mean it that I didn't even want to do the work it took to apply. They were like, they were like you need to write up this CV. And I was right, already right. asleep. I was already bored. Yeah. <laughs> and then I, I tried to join the Speakers Bureau at HarperCollins. Ain't nobody called to hear me say nothing about nothing. <laughs> and then I just thought, Attica, you're, you're kind of a fool. You, the, the answer's in front of you. I had a Hollywood agent this whole time. And I have been quietly observing for years that the career I was trying to have as a movie writer, all of those stories had moved to TV. That's right. Mm -hmm. That the stuff that I was doing for Paramount and Warner Brothers and all these big studios was character driven, sociopolitically themed thrillers, dramas, all that stuff is on TV now. And so I just walked back into the building that, you know, <laughs> was there for me anytime I wanted to walk back in. And at first I said, I want my own show. And while we talked about how, what that would look like, it was around the time of um, what's called staffing season here that after pilots get, um, they decide which pilots they're going to shoot and they get close to what's coming next week in New York, which are the upfronts mm -hmm. where they're going to every, you know, network announces their new schedule. Staffing season is you go to a bunch of meetings and meet on shows to see if you can be on them. Right. And so I happened to go into my agency right at that time. And I said, while I'm here, send me all these scripts. Hell, I've never done this before, but you know what? <laughs> I said, I remember saying to myself at home one day, I actually got on my knees and I said to myself and I said to my God, I am willing to be uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. I'm willing to not know what I'm doing. Like I had to put it out there that I wouldn't let that kind of fear about trying something so different than anything I'd ever done before. Let that fear stop me from trying. So this is like and a third pivot, right? So you hit, you were in movies and then you pivot right. to, to writing a novel, right? Right. And then, and then you're then pivoting I, to TV. I, Pivoted back. And, and part of that pivot would not have landed but for Empire, if I'm real. Mm. Because I went on a bunch of meetings and I read a bunch of scripts. And that one stood out in a way that I've told people this before. I didn't sleep the night before my meetings. I read, I read the script and I had a bunch of meetings that day. But at night, I was up, and it was only Empire. I was I wasn't thinking about none of those other shows. What, it what was, jumped it was out? Just Empire. What about Empire jumped out to you so much? Um, I said I said this in uh, it's going to come out in some um, interview I did, but I'll I'll tell you guys too. There are two answers. There's an intellectual answer, <laughs> and there's is the, is the answer from my soul. Mm -hmm. The intellectual answer is that. It was a, it fascinated me to see a family jump class in a single generation. Yeah, that's I, and it, that is such a compelling story. It I, is I, so compelling. We as Black folks do not have training around generational wealth. Mm -hmm. Like, who is going to explain to Lucius how to do any of that stuff? You know, so I, that was fascinating to me. Right, and My, Lucius, in a lot of ways, is you know, like a lot of folks in that position, he has to he's had to learn on his own. He's an autodidact, right? Learn, and, he, and he reverts back to doing shit. Half that he should do, right, exactly. Right. The, the, the shit that got him there, right? So that fascinates me. But my sole answer is, it, the show was so fundamentally black. Hmm. I just have never seen anything that was that black. I don't, I don't know another way to say it, but that's just the truth. And it was blacker to me than Good Times was black. It was blacker to me oh, than wow. the Cosby show was black. It was just something about it just felt really unprecedented. And I just fell in love. I just completely fell in love. And I had like 8 million meetings to get the job. 
it felt from the beginning like a fit. I just kept my fingers crossed because mm-hmm. I felt from my first meeting that, wow, this could really work out. And part of that too was that they were willing to see my life story as having value. I'd never worked on a TV show before. And that was not something that they thought meant I couldn't walk into the room. Right. They they didn't hold it against you. They did not. In fact, it was the opposite. There was truly a sense that, wow, that's actually cool that you're not coming from TV. There, there were in the first season, there were two two playwrights. Um, There was a, yeah, there was a guy who um, had been on on shows before. He's also a music video director. You know, mm-hmm. they were getting people coming from a lot of different places. And this year, we have even more of that. Oh, so when did you know? Can you tell us about when you found out that you landed Empire? Like, like that moment um, you found out? Was it a phone call? Or was it like it a- was? A, it was a phone call. It was a phone call, and I, I think I might have thrown myself on the floor when I hung. <laughs> <laughs> just, just I was just prostrate with joy and being overwhelmed and just so excited. Did you know that it was going to be like, did you have a conception that it was going to be like this thing? And the reason why I asked is because when I first, I remember seeing like some advertising about it and I was like, Oh my God, Terrence Howard in this conk. Like I couldn't, (laughs) I was, I was the biggest doubter, but now like I am the biggest convert proselytizer. I will, you know, I am here for Cookie, and um, I'm I worship at the well, no, I don't worship at the Church of Cookie, but very close <laughs> to it. <laughs> I don't, you know, that the numbers would be. I mean, you're talking fifty mil, how many million? Yeah. None of us knew that, but I will tell you this: we frequently would look at each other in the room and be like, "I would watch the hell out of this show." <laughs> yeah. You know, we were just entertaining ourselves to no end. So the idea that it landed is is exciting, but I didn't know it would be this big. But I think we all kind of knew that we had never seen Jamal on TV before. We'd never seen Cookie on TV before. Mm. You know, we'd never seen somebody with bipolar in a black family. We just had never seen any of this stuff. And then you throw a bump and soundtrack under it. I mean, it's did just you know great. that? Wait, so how how does the music like how I know Timberland is like the executive producer the music, yeah, like, for the music. How does how does that weave into like what you guys did with the writing? Like, did they have the soundtrack already built in? Oh, or? no, no, no. It all that is all original music okay. that came from stuff that we told them. OK, this is what we're doing. Like, I'll put it to you this way. An example I've given people before is think about episode. It was episode five. Jamal records uh, Keep Your Money. Oh, okay. We already knew when we started the season where we were trying to take Jamal. Okay. And so we kind of got a sense of when is he going to have this turn? And we knew that he was going to reject his father's money and have to come out on his own. So we start telling Timbaland and his writer, Jim Beans, we start telling them, we got to get to this moment, but we better tell you this now because the song has to be really fucking good. And it has to, <laughs> you know, we got to give them space to do it. And we also told them how it was going to come about. We told them he's going to be in this this awful little apartment stuck. <laughs> so play with these sounds. Can you help? They're geniuses. So they take everything that we say in the room and just run with it. Well, what about Drip Drop? Because that is my personal <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, it goes hard in the club. I heard they play it in California in the club. No, they they put it on the radio. All kind of play. People all kind of play. Oh now, I will say this. Yes, uh, who plays Hakeem does a lot of his, uh, writes a lot of his own mm-hmm. raps. That's mostly him. But that also, I, I actually don't remember much, much conversation about how Drip Drop came out. It may be that he and, he and Tim together <laughs> came up with the beat and did the whole thing. I know Jamal co-wrote some of You're So Beautiful. Um, okay. So, you know, they're involved too. I mean, they're the, when they cast these guys, they made a decision that we can go with actors we've seen before mm. who can kind of do music, or we can go with real musicians that we think can do the acting. And that's the choice they made. And it was the right choice. Yeah. And they all look like they could be related to. That's they all look like they, they really could be related, do. and they're they're all. And I have to say, they are all honestly about the sweetest people. I, I remember we 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 would li- you know we all live tweet. Uh, mostly, it was just the writers, but um, somewhere around episode ten, we all did a big live tweet of Fox, and the cast was there. Okay, and I remember looking at them really closely to see because by then the numbers were huge, right. you know, up every week, and I just looked at them closely to see had they changed. And they hadn't. And it was it was really, really sweet to see that there was no part of them that was grandstanding or obnoxious or different. I was really looking at that little Yaz because he's a baby. He's, he's like 20. Fi- wait, he's, he's like 21. Oh, OK. He's an absolute baby, but he is nothing like that character. He's a really sweet. He's, <laughs> he's a from Philly. Sweet. He's from Philly, yeah. too. Yeah. 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 Total sweet kid. <laughs> they are all uh, that I have seen humbled and um, excited. So, okay, so we were talking about the pivots to different kinds of plotting, right? You got your uh, uh, movie plots, then you move to novel plotting, and then you move to TV plotting. But Empire is plotted... I mean, y'all burn through so much plot. I, like, how do y'all keep up? I mean, how, I mean, that has to be a challenge, like, going forward. Like, in the yeah. first season, I mean, uh, I'm, sure, I'm assuming people who are listening to this will have, heard, will have watched the first season already. But, I mean... I mean, so much happened in the first season. So much will happen in a given episode, right? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you a couple of things. One, the number one feedback we've gotten from viewers is slow the fuck down. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think there, we have that in our minds going into season two. We'll see what that ultimately looks like. Uh, I think it's still going to have as many twists and turns. But you have to understand, Fox only gave us, we were supposed to have an order of 12 plus the pilot, which is 13. They cut one of the episodes. Episodes. Oh wow! Oh, wow. But early, early in the process. But they once had, they just saw the numbers, they would—I'm sure they would have had. Yeah. Wish they had the episode back. And it had to do with timing it with American Idol. It, there was nothing about what we were showing them. <laughs> it, it just was a, a hiccup in the schedule. But that meant we had to compress mm. all of the story into basically eleven uh, episodes. And wow. so next year they have not they're going to give their official order on monday so i can't say anything about that sure. i'm going with my gut that it will be larger and that there'll be more space not so not so that we're not going to have these great turns but but you may have more breathing more room breathing you know space, what i mean yeah. the funny thing is that was a joke with all of us in the room that oh, that right. everything's going so fast that if you got up and went to the bathroom you could come back and be like what jamal has a kid <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it does it does move fast, and that's part of the fun of it, and you know, and all that. Would you prefer? So, you know, a lot of the the big uh, sort of prestige shows have you know their thirteen episode runs, right? Would you prefer like a big twenty two episode order? Or would you prefer like a, a smaller, like tighter? Uh, I, I, I would, I just don't think this show can go twenty two. Mm-hmm. This is my opinion, and part of that has to do with the music. That oh yeah. 
part of, I don't want to burn Timbaland out. I mean, they were working so hard because think about it. They're having to write ahead. Mm-hmm. They're ha- like, I'm telling you, you're recording for episode one. I need you to be writing for episode five mm-hmm. music. Mm-hmm. And the, and all the actors are having to, when they're not on set, literally then be in a studio all the time making all the music. It would really, I think it would burn people out. I think it's hard to have the show and the music stay at a quality if you went 22. Right. And, and from, from the veterans in the room who've been on soaps before, I've heard that sometimes you get a big number like that and you get around episode 15, 18, and you're just kind of treading water. Right. Like, mm-hmm. You know, so I think tighter is better, but I don't I don't know what they've not even told. We've been showing up to work every week without knowing what the episode order is going to be. It's, right. Yeah. And especially yeah. considering how your numbers look, I'm sure they want to like milk that as much as possible. I mean, you know what I mean? I'm sure they like if you if I was a studio and I was running a show that was like what was fourth in the ratings, I think the, the week. The, the yeah. Finale, some yeah. crazy something crazy like that. Right. I would want. You know what I mean? That's what they did with American Idol. Like, let's put this on all the time, right? You know what right, I mean? Right, right, right. Um, I would imagine that, that would, they would probably be inclined to do an alone run. And, and you know, the other thing, too, is, you, you know, this show has these incredible stars. I think they also still want to have a film career. That's right, yeah. And it's very hard for them to do that with 22 episodes. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. That's a really good point. I feel like my brain is going to totally melt down just thinking about Empire because I get so worked up and excited about it. Just every <laughs> because it's something that I watch with my 84 year old grandpa, grandmother, with my mom, my sister, my aunts. And like we it's like we all watch it and then we come together to discuss it. And each person has like a different thing that they like about it. So my mom is into like. Ooh, it's like she's into Taraji, right? I mean, I love Taraji too, but she's into her. Like she's like sassy and doing her thing. She's like getting getting people to take the cookies and all this other stuff. Like she's really like into that. My grandmother just is like, okay, like I'm watching TV. Like this is cool. But I just I like the music. I like the um. I just like everything about it. I'm like fangirling right now. <laughs> no, I under- I mean, you you all have to understand. I feel the same way. <laughs> I mean, I've watched every episode. I don't know how many times. I still talk to the screen. I oh feel God. the same way, and I think the the I think what's been most special for us as the writers um, is the generational aspect of it. The mm-hmm. fact that. We are hearing from our great aunts. Everybody in the room has that one great aunt who's called us and said, y'all know they cut Wednesday church service short so we can get home. So I can't buy it. <laughs> you know, it's fun to hear that and also hear from teenagers. So, you know, it, it's just been I kind of get why why it's so special. But I also think that it feels magically touched with something. It's mm. just it's a special show. What? It's a special show. So. The success of shows like Scandal and Empire are have been greeted with like, you know, a lot of surprise, right? But there have been plenty of shows that have had really robust support from black women, right? I mean, you got your I mean, and then these are not, these are shows on cable, these are like reality shows, Real Housewives, mm-hmm. Love mm-hmm. Hip Hop Atlanta. And I think people didn't think of those shows as legitimate and they and there was a whole bunch of like conversations about respectability around those shows, which I found mm-hmm. exhausting because I think the, those conversations are silly. But um I feel like Empire hasn't had to... I mean, I've definitely seen some of that out there. People criticizing Empire for, like, its portrayal of black folks broadly. Mm-hmm, but I've mm-hmm. seen less of it. And I wonder if how much of that is because we've sort of been through the cycle of having, you know, a bunch of reality shows over the last decade or so that have sort of shown um, 
that have had like black women being like loud and rambunctious or like you know and outspoken and and like maybe maybe people have just gotten used to the idea that like people can hold in their head that these many things at the same time right as opposed to like everyone having to be Claire Huxtable all the time because I yeah, do think I... that the conversation around um, around black women not being or, or people acting you know rash at whatever is a really dehumanizing conversation because Cookie is a fantastic character right she's an incredibly well written character well I, um, I think the difference is and I'm with you respectability politics not only bores the hell out of me I sometimes feel enraged by it yeah, uh, and we've we, you know, obviously heard a lot of this around Empire. I think the difference is that with a Real Housewives of Atlanta, you're not necessarily getting, you know, Cookie is crazy as fuck, but she's also a, such a loving mother. Right. You know, Lucius is the devil, except <laughs> except when he's not no, the devil. Not, right. Except, you know, so you're getting well-rounded um, characters in a way that no reality show could ever do, because that's just not his genre. Sure, and I it's, certainly wasn't, I didn't mean to compare it, like, directly. I, mean, I just meant that, like, those are oh, conversations we, talk, we always Wait a minute, see. oh, I have wait, seen that, though. We're, we're in the room talking about, we talk about the Real Housewives all the time. <laughs> oh, wow. We talk about this kind of stuff. But I, I think the difference is that hopefully Empire is a bridge to a new way black folks can engage with the art of their lives that we, you know, for so long have only been able to engage at the level of representation right. and, and the pressure put on that representation and that we're learning how to flex a new muscle in terms of being able to engage with ourselves at the level of art, which means complication, which means like we've, we now, I've been saying this before, we now have our empire. I can't wait till we have our boardwalk empire, till we have our madmen, mm-hmm. till we have our, our, are breaking bad. You know what I'm saying? Like right. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I want more and more of the complication. I think Empire is a bridge to that. So you finna write that? I'm, I'm gonna try to. You read my mind. <laughs> I mean, I, I hope something like that is in my future. I think it would be wonderful if I arrived at a place in my future that kind of could marry who I am as a novelist with who I'm trying to become as this burgeoning TV producer. Awesome. Oh well. I'm excited for you. Me too. Yeah. What, so no. what, what, besides Empire, outside of your novels, is there anything else that you're plotting? And I have a kid and all this too now. Yeah, I have, I have a daughter. So, um, nope, that's, that's pretty much it. I mean, I'm, I have some long range things in mind, but as I said, I'm literally right now sitting on my bed trying to break an episode. So can you, can that's you tell just, us a little bit about what's Oh, heck no. <laughs> No, y'all not gonna get me fired. <laughs> she on her good job. Don't be doing that, Jenny. <laughs> well, Attica, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you, guys. Yeah, thank. I'm. I mean, I'm just. I'm still like fangirling over here over the book part and the empire part. So I just need to like cool down. But thank you so much. <laughs> I really appreciate it. And continue success. Thank, thank you, and thank you for having me. Of course. Right, take care. Take care. Alright, so if you want to follow Attica, besides, you know, her writing, which you should get up on, and on Empire, you can follow her on Twitter at Attica Lock. That's A-T-T-I-C-A-L-O-C-K-E. You can follow Taryn at Dope Reads, D-O-P-E-R-E-A-D-S. You can follow me, Gene Demby, at G-E-E-D-E-E-215. You can follow Post Bougie at, at Post Bougie, P-O-S-T-B-O-R-E. 
B-O-S-T-B-O-U-R-G-I-E. People are like, I like your site post bougie. And I'm like, that's not, it's, the R is silent. And I feel like I, I should have I fucked up by calling it. I should have just dropped the R like yeah. years ago. Anyway, that's what we got this week. We'll see you soon. Peace. Be easy. Our theme music is Nick's Groove by The Foreign Exchange. And shout outs to our podcast producer, Channing Kennedy. Holler at us and sign up for our newsletter at postbougie.com.